Der deutsche Spargelkult müsse enden. Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD. Volkswagen ist eine Perle der deutschen Industrie. Und ich glaube, das kann man nicht sagen. Ich weiß, wie viel Liebe dahinter steckt. Wenn Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn Waffen. Spargelweltmeister ist China, denn die bauen sich. Hello, this is Isaac. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We have a really exciting episode for you today. Ted interviewed economic sociologist Professor Wolfgang Streeck, one of the leading scholars and commentators on European capitalism and emeritus director at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne. Ted has a really enlightening conversation with Professor Streeck about Germany's political and economic role in Europe at this particular moment. We have about 45 to 50 minutes of that conversation on the main feed right here for you to listen to now, but we've kept the last 20 to 30 minutes for an episode we'll be releasing on Patreon next week, where Ted and Michelle are also going to reflect and comment a bit on some of the things that Professor Strayk said. So enjoy this first part of their conversation. I know I really learned a lot from it, and if you want to hear the rest, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. We really appreciate the support. All right, on to Ted and Professor Wolfgang Strayk. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Spaßbremse. This is Ted, and I'm joined here by a very special guest. We've got Professor Wolfgang Streeck, who is at the uh, Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne, where he was previously the director for about two decades. So uh, welcome, Professor Streeck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm sure to a lot of our listeners, this name will be uh, quite familiar. Um, Wolfgang's written extensively about European and German politics, publishing books like How Will Capitalism End and Buying Time, just to name the more recent ones. However, you've also written very widely um, in publications like NLR Sidecar, um, some in, in Brave New Europe and some other review pieces. So what I'd like to do, given the kind of momentous changes in German and European politics recently, is focus on some of those uh, more recent writings about uh, about sort of more more current events and, and your analysis of everything that's been going on. I think to lead off, what's sort of been the the main probably the you know the news event of 2022 has obviously been Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, in the context of German policy and politics, of course, that's sort of meant two things: one, the energy crisis, and then. Um, in German foreign policy, the, the Zeitenwende, as Chancellor Olaf Scholz called it, with Germany sort of finally embracing like um, a hegemonic kind of military role to to accompany its hegemonic economic role in Europe and increasing spending, um, you know, quite dramatically with this hundred billion one-off fund. Um, what do you make of this? You know, we we hear all these terms. Um, there's these terms in the sort of think tank sphere. Germany's uh, waking up from its geopolitical slumber to embrace a leadership role. I know you've written very cl- critically about this. So, what, what, what's your take on on these um, supposed changes at the time? Schultz didn't say hegemonic. Oh and, no, certainly then, he wouldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, and and that was quite quite right. And you you see. And as a political economist, I have come to learn that uh, that it's not just uh, the economy stupid, but it's also the nukes stupid. And uh, you have to combine the the nukes and the economy to understand what is going on in a in a in a country. And, and Germany doesn't happen uh, to have uh, the nuclear arms. 
uh, it uh, depends entirely on the uh, nuclear umbrella of the United States, uh, which is not just an umbrella. Uh, the United States have roughly 30,000 troops uh, on German soil. Um, they have um, an unknown number of nuclear bombs on German soil. The number isn't even known to the German government. Uh, they have a military establishment in southwestern Germany, which is the uh, the um, guidepost, uh, the, the the headquarters for all uh, American military operations uh, in the in the Middle East and uh, Northern Africa. So, for all practical purposes, uh, Germany is not uh, a sovereign country, uh, and. Uh, uh, as a sort of old-fashioned peacenik, uh, I, I find it hard to say that in order to be sovereign as a big country these days, it, it, it's useful to have access to some nuclear bombs. But uh, it seems to be the case that, that, that this is so. So, so uh, uh, Germany, Germany cannot imagine to, uh, to play uh, uh, in, 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 in matters of life and death or in geo, geostrategic and geopolitical uh, matters uh, to play the role of a big power. Uh, the, that role is uh, played for Germany uh, by the United States. And of course, that is um, a problem, uh, not just for Germany, but it is also a problem for Europe. Uh, if if um, continental Europe, uh, forget about the, the UK for the for the time being, if continental Europe wanted to be an independent third force uh, in in the global uh, power game, uh, it would have to be an alliance uh, or based on an alliance, a hegemonic alliance, if you want, between France and and and, and Germany. Uh, if that was to happen, then France would have to divide its uh, its nuclear uh, power uh, with Germany uh, or share in control. The, uh, maybe the Germans would pay for it, but they would also want to know what it is used for. They, they want, would want to have a word on, on a say on it. Uh, and that has been that has been in, in completely impossible. Even uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, when there was something like a sort of Gaullist uh, uh, element in in uh, German foreign policy, it it just doesn't happen. It sort of feels like this immovable fact of like where European um, efforts to create, you know, now the term that's been thrown around, especially during the Trump administration, right, was European strategic autonomy. That's that's been ditched a little bit in uh, in recent. Uh, years given you know especially the invasion but it's like yeah this this sort of feels like this immovable constraint where right like france wants to use the european union as a sort of extension of its own power germany would then be required to go along and sort of support france economically but germany has such strong atlanticist instincts that it's not really willing to break away from the the very very strong yeah, that, with the US. That, let me say it's not just instincts it is instincts but it's also structures and 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 structures and instincts and evolution uh, become to be uh, co- uh, sort of co- uh, coherent and and uh, uh, the the german foreign policy establishment has this very very strong atlanticist uh, 
tendencies which have become stronger uh, as a result of the war and of the of the greens uh, uh, joining the german government uh, you you cannot imagine someone more pro american and pro atlanticist uh, than our present foreign minister uh, that is uh, you, you can't beat her i mean i mean the, <laughs> This yeah. is this is um, uh, the Clinton or the Hillary Clinton in uh, of, of the next generation. Well, just the way they made um, during some of the debates, right? They were basically tried to make the the Linka candidates get down and pledge allegiance to NATO on the on the debate stage, saying, you know, like how can the, the creation of this this logic where it's totally beyond the pale to even question NATO, right? And I know you've mentioned yeah. in your sidecar piece. Um, obviously, it's not just a, a political arrangement that that Germany has, you know, is so strongly Atlanticist. But this is a huge, you know, political economy and and industrial policy as well. Buying up to thirty five of the F thirty uh, five stealth fighter bombers, which you know cost a cost a wild amount, and I guess that they finally yeah. got them working. Yeah, no, this 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 um, the F thirty five is is as you know uh, capable of carrying nuclear nuclear bombs. And and we have this wonderful arrangement with the United States, which is called <laughs> which is called in Orwellian language uh, um, nuclear participation or, or nuclear sharing, the tile uh, hubble, yeah. and, and, under which the United States can tell the German uh, uh, the the German Air Force to pick up uh, American uh, nuclear bombs and carry them uh, to a uh, to a place. Uh, Chosen by uh, the United States, and uh, and that is called nuclear participation. It, it is it is essentially uh, sharing, but it's sharing the risk, uh, the, or even sort of burdening the Germans with the risk of of, of countermeasures, because the Americans are sitting. They, they can play two games at the same time: the game of a continental nuclear power. And the claim of uh, the, the 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 game of global uh, uh, nuclear power and 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 the intercontinental and the continental uh, nuclear arms are very different. If you if you if you if you shoot the continental ones uh, on the on the, the the Russians, the Russians may not necessarily choose uh, to, uh, to to reply by attacking the American uh, heartland. They. They they might attack Germany where they where the bombs will be coming from. Uh, so so yes, you you see how deeply so this Atlanticist uh, obedience, so to speak, is uh, is written into the fabric of of German politics. You can uh, you can see when you th think about the response uh, of Germany. Uh, to the blowing up of these two uh, pipelines in the in the uh, in, in in the Baltic, for all practical reasons, uh, there is at least there is at least a sort of strong legitimate suspicion that that these were blown up by the United States but, and by the, nobody else. In German uh, politics and in the German press, nobody. Nobody even has this possibility. It's completely taboo. Uh, not even in terms of there are people who claim that this is the case, uh, but we, of course, uh, detest them for whatever. Not, not even, not even that. 
conspiracy theories and yeah you know yeah yeah it's unbelievable unbelievable how how this uh, sort of collective silence on something that is so absolutely atrocious <laughs> like like this so in in the middle of one of the most heavily policed uh, policed water uh, in 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 the world someone performing this uh, technologically apparently extremely complex operation of blowing up these things uh, on NATO territory and then uh, uh, suggesting even that the Russians could have done it where had this expedition force been uh, uh, detected in flagranti which is always possible it would have been an attack on uh, on NATO uh, territory and would have called forth uh, Article 5. Now, now the Russians seem to be pretty mad, but assuming that they are so mad, where well, they could have blown this up on their own territory, <laughs> because this is where the pipeline starts, it is not a discussion that in this country anyone will engage in. Yeah, it's like, you know, obviously it's, it's speculation as to who really did it, but yeah, it the, not even bringing up, you know, it as an option that the U.S. could be involved, and it's. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, it yeah, speaks yeah. to this like sort of the dual-faced like nature of how Russia is portrayed, right? It's it's simultaneously incompetent and backwards, and you know can't even find enough fuel for their tanks, and then also has secret weapons and is going to do this complex operation to blow it up. And I'm always I always feel this whiplash of where it's like, wait, are like are the Russian tanks going to be? in Berlin next week, or is yeah. Russia getting pushed back to their own border? And it's like, yeah. it's whatever reality is kind of politically convenient yeah. at a time is like that, that's what Russian capabilities are portrayed but, as. But it, it was not not so difficult. I mean, I'm not a specialist in these things, but I happen sometimes to, uh, to read the publications of this wonderful Swedish uh, research institute, CIPRI, which, which publishes uh, data on, on, arm, on armaments and, and, and arms spending. And um, before the war, it was clear that Russian military expenditures were hardly higher uh, than German ones. Germany alone. Yeah. Uh, moreover, uh, every, every child sort of looking at the newspaper would have known that this relatively small military budget, even if they sort of fake something, but but they they can't they can't fake by a factor of three. That's impossible. Uh, that this very small budget had to be shared between an obviously extremely expensive uh, nuclear uh, force and the and the, uh, uh, the the conventional force. At the same time, you looked at uh, Western. Uh, Western military, and there was one state that, in very very short time, from almost nothing, with an absolutely astonishing rate of increase per per year, uh, made it into I think the tenth or fifteenth rank of of the um, of the most um, highly spending um, uh, countries in the world, which is Ukraine. Ukraine had a sort of a pro- process of uh, of rearmament or arms up build, building up of of, of military uh, capacities, which which was which far exceeded even the American uh, rate, and the Americans were were sort of investing in in in, in their military after the war on on terror uh, at at a, at a pace that was absolutely uh, breathtaking. 
Uh, I, I remember that um, around 2015, uh, the United States were spending one and a half times as much on, on in, in sort of um, uh, constant dollars uh, on, on the military as they were spending at the very height of the, of the Cold War. Yeah. And, and that was a period in which uh, the United States, from uh, sort of the early, early 2000s onwards, had canceled one arms control agreement uh, after the other that stemmed still from the uh, uh, Cold War period when, when the Soviet Union existed, canceled one after the other without replacing them with anything. Uh, and, and, and all these things like intermediate nu nuclear force and all of this were sort of scratched by the United States, not by Russia. I, I used to say, even before the war, if, if Jesus Christ in person would be in charge of the Russian military, he, he would now be extremely concerned about uh, what to do in the face of this. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I, it, the nukes seem to matter. Yeah, I think that's a that's a decent uh, a decent analytical framework of yeah the mo the money and the nukes right it gets yeah. you gets you about ninety percent of the way there, <laughs> and so this is this sort of relates to a a point um, where I heard you discussing on the the Alfe Bunga Bunga podcast a while ago, and and they discussed um, sort of Germany as like the the most end of history country right you know believing in. Uh, you know the sort of quintessential liberal democracy, Wandel der Handel, like um, you know commerce over over military matters. And now Germany is you know seems to be willing to you know maybe not be completely autonomous in terms of its nuclear um, having its own nuclear arsenal, but certainly with very substantial conventional forces. Especially considering, as you've pointed out, that uh, if you're not spending anything on the nuclear side, and you're spending 2% of the very large German GDP, that is a very large conventional army. And so now Germany sort of joining this, um, yeah, this more, more strongly embracing and sort of picking up more of its end of the end of the deal as far as military cooperation with the US. And so is this sort of Germany leaving the end of history, realizing that it's not all trade that can do everything? Or is it really in a sense, fully embracing it by joining the, the more militarist side of the liberal capitalist project. You're, you're talking about a, a subject that is called Germany, so an actor that is called Germany, but that is a com composite actor. There are lots of different elements and, and structures incorporated that, that are not necessarily not in contrast addiction to each other, you, you see. So, so uh, remember Angela Merkel, I, I mean, she, in pre-Diluvian times, she was German chancellor. Now, now nobody, everybody admired I, I don't her. remember who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> now, everybody admired her. Now, everybody despises her. <clears throat> so, Angela Merkel was, a, was an absolute champion. Uh, in the art of making uh, promises and uh, uh, agreements, uh, which uh, on, on which she never f even intended to follow up, yeah, that was pretty useful uh, in in relationship to to first of all the United States, 
uh, which is a very volatile, very volatile country. The, their foreign policy has a short sort of attention span, <laughs> and uh, they they need something for for the next half year, and then they are concerned with something else, which is no wonder because they are, have to be concerned with the with the whole world, and 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 not just with Europe. Uh, that, so something of this skill uh, is still. Uh, uh, Sort of, sort of uh, exercised uh, by someone like Scholz. So, three days into the war, he announced the so-called Zeitenwende and this 100 billion uh, special fund for uh, the German uh, military. Now, 100 billion is a lot of money, at least at the first glance. Remember that a few days ago he announced another special fund, uh, which was to subsidize uh, energy prices in Germany for 200 billion. And, and the energy subsidies should be paid only for, I think, a period of one and a half years, whereas the, uh, the 100 billion for the military, uh, I think four or five years, yeah? but that was completely unrealistic from the beginning. Because uh, if if you try to buy, I mean, I mean, especially German German <laughs> German generals and engineers are obsessed with technology. So so when they order new planes, they really want the best possible planes, and and that takes time. Uh, they have to be sort of rebuilt, specified, and so. They, except for the F thirty fives, which are a special hobby of our foreign minister. Who already during the uh, the um, uh, discussions on the on the, the coalition talks sort of insisted that uh, the F 35s would be bought right away uh, after after taking over uh, the, uh, the the government. So so they are counted into the one hundred billion, but they were already on the bill. And, and these will sort of appear in a matter of two years, they say, then they will have been built. For the rest, it will take a long time. And, and, and someone like Scholz, in true Merkel spirit, sort of thinks that who knows what the world will be like in, <laughs> in two or three years. Yeah? Uh, also, uh, originally it was said that the 100 billion would be on top of a general increase of the German uh, defense budget, the regular defense budget, from 1.3% of GDP to 2% of GDP. Now it is going to be factored into that increase, and and nobody knows when it will be. They were a little clever with that one. (laughs) They were a little clever with that one. I saw the sleight of hand. But but it's not just cleverness. It It is the difficulty of, for example, convincing the Social Democratic Parliamentary Party uh, to, to to agree to these things, while at the same time having to do something because otherwise the, the Greens uh, sort of will will uh, change camp and and um, um, possibly have mouths will be the next chance. So it is a very complicated operation. Uh, the heart of the Social Democrats is not into this, apart from 
from their so-called defense specialists who are all trained <laughs> trained in, in American uh, training courses and uh, they are sort of NATO fanatics or, or, or most of them. You, you know these people from, uh, from the United Kingdom, I would suppose. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very... Um... <laughs> It, it's it's weird because Germany, you know, sort of sets itself up as like very the sort of the opposite of the U.S. in some ways in terms of like the the social model or so on. But then yeah. when it comes to the military, they're like it's like the U.S. You know, it's from the U.K. as well, where they just look up to it like this big shining star and example, yeah. and like they all sort of want to want to emulate that. And it, you see that in the the think tank sector as well, where I think. They want to. They want to wield though that same power that their U.S. equivalents have. In, in spite of the fact, and this is in spite of the fact that the United States have not won a single war in the 21st century. They they were sort of utterly defeated in in Afghanistan. Uh, they lost everything in in Libya. Uh, they are out of Iraq, like like uh, sort of dogs uh, whipped up <laughs> by, by the owner. Yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. But at the same time, they still appear like uh, uh, sort of Hercules and uh, Achilles in one person. Yeah, and buying the buying the F thirty five is the is the sort of ultimate tithing to the Atlanticist war gods. Yeah, 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 and I mean this. What I see, obviously, here, you know, it feels like everyone got into this frenzy right right after the war, which, you know, in some sense, you understand it's like really atrocious and, and, and violent invasion. Um, but then it it seems like some of these things that have been set in motion are going, the contradictions are going to just be overwhelming at some point, right? So it, it all looks good and fine when Joe Biden is the president to, to embrace Atlanticism and, and everyone's okay with that. Um, you know, even... And like I said, this talk of European strategic autonomy has kind of taken the back seat. Now it's how can we be autonomous with the U.S. instead of autonomous from the U.S. Yeah. But this is going to run into a big problem if Donald Trump gets elected in 2024. Like, I, I honestly don't know how that process could get squared um, of, yeah. of the U.S. being the, the number one defender of liberal democracy. And we all have to rally behind them. And it's led by Donald Trump. Like. Could you offer any guesses on how that situation might play out? No, because because uh, I I've come to the conclusion that the present uh, situation politically, economically, uh, let's say the the situation of the capitalist state and its capitalism has become so chaotic that uh, any predictions uh, are as good as the other. Uh, yes, Trump could be elected. This guy from Florida, this this new uh, uh, governor, could could be president. Uh, the even under Biden, in a second term, uh, it would be my suspicion uh, that they will be uh, much more actively looking towards China and the uh, the, the South uh, Chinese Sea, and there the Indo. Pacific, they now call it, because because they claim China has nothing to do with it, and and then uh, the the thing becomes like, how can you how can you get uh, uh, Europe and Germany uh, to uh, uh, so participate in the big American campaign against China? And uh, Trump, uh, uh, liberal democracy, back and forth, no problem. He 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 was already getting uh, sort of geared up uh, for for the great Asian sh show, showdown. 
the, the, the difference between Trump and Biden, in my view, is that uh, uh, Trump thought that in order to uh, to uh, go to war with uh, China, he should somehow settle with Russia, uh, his his friend and buddy Putin, and, uh, and then give up NATO. Remember his so his memorable insight that NATO was uh, set up uh, to fight communism, but communism was gone in in 1991. What was NATO good for? He had just forgotten that uh, Clinton and Bush had sort of reforged NATO into a global intervention force uh, away from territorial defense in, in, in Europe. Uh, out of area or out of business, as they say. Yeah, out yeah. of area and, <laughs> and uh, sort of going with the American friends to wherever the American friends would be going. Yeah? The, the problem in Europe was that the, that the French, up to the present day, don't want it. Uh, the, the Germans, they think, they can get to do what the Americans tell them. And that, that, that gets us back to this emblematic uh, uh, event about the, uh, uh, the, the pipeline, uh, when, where, where the American Senate, long before the war, voted, I think, 98 to 2, that that pipeline would not go into operation. The Nord Stream 2 yeah, 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 yeah. Where they were yeah, yeah. sanctioning it really heavily and trying to stop it from getting built. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they sent yeah. these threatening letters to like a the the mayor of the small town on the Baltic yeah. coast. Where, yeah, it was <laughs> really strange. Yeah, yeah. Typical, typical American foreign policy. Yeah, uh, it was the it was the, the liberal international order rule rule bound uh, where everybody is bound by the rules set up by the United States. You're some German mayor, and you end up with a, a letter on your desk from Ted Cruz all all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. In in um, in of course, all of this relates to the future of the of the European Union, and and um, one one can't discuss. Uh, Germany uh, in isolation uh, from uh, and 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 we didn't do that up to now because we always re- refer to to France and the French role in in, in all of this uh, and and European Union is, is sort of a very very uh, endangered um, uh, construction these days uh, be, because see the the Eastern countries the new Eastern members were um, uh, enthusiastic members of the coalition of the willing uh, when the uh, Americans invaded uh, Iraq. Uh, Ukraine was there, Poland was there, I think Hungary was there even, but but, but I don't remember that. Romania in any case. So uh, Germany and France refused to go. uh, Schröder for electoral reasons, uh, Chirac uh, for general foreign policy uh, reasons that are typical too for the for, for, for the French, and and now now the division uh, in the European Uni- uh, Union uh, between the Eastern countries, uh, uh, nationalist sort of war, uh, <laughs> you could even say warlike, drunk by the by the prospect of uh, first first in their history winning a war against Russia. Uh, and Germany, concerned about uh, being uh, the target uh, of uh, the last remaining uh, 
uh, weapons of of, uh, of of Russia, namely the nukes. Uh, this divides the European Union in a way which I think will last for a very, very long time, if it ever will be rescinded. The, the Eastern countries that have been treated like uh, sort of newcomers to a club where they had to shut up and, and listen to what the club is all about and, and do what the, what, what the old establishment does. Now they think they can dictate wh what, the, what the European Union is about, not uh, the spread of sort of uh, rule of law, but the spread of uh, heavy, heavy tank arm, uh, uh, arms uh, to, to be uh, for, for the Baltics and Poland and everybody else to be defended against the Russians. Right. It's another sort of feels like ancient history, but it was just back in, in January where Poland was the black sheep of Europe for their um, judicial reforms and, and removing the independence of some of the courts. And every, every you know, real liberal Democrat, Eurocrat was, was writing these papers and going on about how are we going to sanction Poland? How are we going to find them? And now they're this exemplary case of defending freedom against, yeah. against Russia and the, just like complete whiplash from, from that change in the, in the discourse about how Poland's been treated. Yeah, it's it's even uh, it's even uh, worse. The, uh, the Poland has now the Polish governing party looking for, uh, to the to the next elections early next year uh, has sort of set up a package of uh, claims for war reparations um, from uh, from Germany to the tune of uh, 1.3 trillion uh, uh, euros, which is three. A yearly uh, budgets of the German federal government, uh, and and very very interesting, and and they have now sort of signed it, uh, put into a diplomatic note, sent to Berlin, uh, claiming this amount of uh, of war damages, and interestingly, the liberal opposition in Poland that had been uh, sort of supported by the Western countries in the hope that they would win the next election. Like this former uh, former uh, uh, prime minister of, of Poland, who later became president of, uh, of, of the European Council. What's his name? Is it Tusk? Uh, or? Yeah, yeah, Tusk. Yeah, 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 yeah Tusk. And, and he, uh, uh, they also support this, uh, this, this claim. Yeah, showing how deep uh, this, uh, uh, let's put it uh, tongue-in-cheek, how much uh, the Polish people love the German people. And, and, <laughs> and of course, of course that, uh, uh, that has consequences for uh, uh, German foreign policy, although the government is trying to hide this. They are, they are not really talking about it. But, but inside the European Union, there's also uh, a pending uh, decision of the uh, highest Italian court, uh, which also uh, entitles the government, uh, as far as I remember, to impound uh, any uh, public, any state uh, property in uh, Italy, like villas uh, or whatever, uh, now education centers, that, that are held by the German state and uh, as war well reparations. And, and, and of course, you see, uh, Germans look around, after the, end of, uh, after the end of history, they thought that if they sort of uh, work and shut up and everything, every, everybody will love them. And, and they wanted to be loved. 
to be loved. And now, uh, now they look around and they see that in this European construction, with the sort of very strange uh, assumptions that there would be a center that could uh, teach teach the the periphery, uh, the eastern periphery, how to run a liberal democracy, the southern periphery, how to run a decent capitalist economy, yeah, the western uh, uh, periphery, namely the Brits, to finally have a sort of decent uh, a constitutional state rather than this strange arrangement with with parliamentary uh, uh, sovereignty, and and finally bow to the European Court as the last instance of uh, uh, policy of of the land, and 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 these people just didn't want to hear, yeah, then and and there seems to have been building up an, an amount of resentment. Uh, that may be justified or not justified or whatever, but but it's very useful for the local political elites who are also affected by the crisis both of uh, of uh, contemporary capitalism and of the contemporary uh, sort of state security architecture to, uh, rather than do something about their problems, blame them on the Germans or or demand that uh, <laughs> that that Brussels does something for them. In Italy is a sort of fantastic example for this. Yeah, the Italian the Italian uh, uh, state you may know has since the early 1990s the Italian state has rigidly obeyed uh, Brussels um, uh, Brussels austerity rules, uh, pr- producing uh, a core uh, a surplus in its core budget. Uh, uh, not counting uh, the debt service. The yeah. the primary budget has always been primary budget yeah, yeah. year by year, yeah. Thereby ruining its healthcare system, ruining its public its public education system, and uh, always looking for uh, Germany and waiting for the Germans to say to put them on the shoulder and say, "Look, wonderful, and now we do something for you." Yeah. I mean, and I guess the the next generation EU fund, which, um, another another one in this list of very bizarre political terms that we're running through today, um, the the sort of it, it was hailed right as this uh, Hamiltonian moment um, after yeah. the coronavirus hit. There was this finally this agreement to issue some joint EU debt, which had sort of been the the demand all throughout the the euro crisis. And with Italy, I think especially was was sort of finally a sympathetic case, right? Because the pandemic hit them so um, so early on and, and so hard. And so, okay, we're going to have this um, we're going to have this fund, um, and we're going to redistribute some of the money in order to help countries sort of um, to to rebuild. And I guess the hope was that this would stabilize Italian politics. That obviously has not been the case, considering the recent <laughs> election with the the post fascist. Um, Brothers of Italy uh, now going to lead the government, and so, yeah. What, what is the sort of relationship there, or like, because it feels like Germany has to kind of play to this like populist press, where you know you see these sort of sensationalist um, Spiegel covers or something, where yeah. where Italy is always is always doing it wrong. They're lazy. They're having their wine and their women, and and they they're they're spending too much money, which, as you pointed out, is is not true at all, but. Yeah. It, you know, whatever they do, it's not enough for the German conservatives. And yet Germany at the, the political class does sort of realize we need to throw them a bone. We need to do something. And then that also seems like it's never really enough to help remedy Italian politics. So like, 
Is that a pretty unresolvable tension? I mean, you mentioned this sort of seemingly unresolvable east-west tension, and now there's this north-south one that seems yeah, about no, as bad. North-south is older than 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 east um, uh, east than, than than the eastern um, problem. The western problem existed all the time. The Brits uh, sort of were powerful enough not to have to bow to to some of the uh, rules that the uh, European Union um, passed for its uh, members. They were not part of, of the Schengen arrangement. They they didn't join the euro, and and, and so they had their own nuclear <laughs> nuclear force. Uh, they, they were much closer always to the United States than than, than they were to to uh, the Central Europe. I I remember uh, David Miliband as, as as foreign minister at a lecture in, at our institute, explaining that uh, the the real interest the, the the interest of Britain in in the European continent was to make sure that the European continent didn't. Uh, Become too too independent, and 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 that it was very good for them to be inside, and rather leading them in the right direction, rather than having to try to push them in the right direction from the outside. That was the sort of um, Blair Blair right uh, uh, European Union. So no, I I want to say that that uh, uh, see in 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 Western Europe, if we want to have some. Sort of territorial regional settlement, region, that's called regional settlement in, in Europe. It needs to be a new kind of, uh, of uh, a state system, uh, or uh, let's say a, a kind of state system that takes into account the uh, differences uh, between uh, these uh, states that had been grown for 200 years. Uh, in both the, the, the self-identification of their population and their political classes, uh, the, the way their capitalism works, and, and so on. And, and the European Union was the opposite of this. They, they want to impose, what, they try to impose on a, on a Catholic conservative country like Hungary, uh, a population and birth control policy, uh, that was invented uh, uh, in uh, yeah the United States or wherever where it doesn't fly either, yeah, and and uh, and then as far as the, the field is concerned that that I'm closer to, uh, then they actually wanted to try to tell uh, the Italian uh, political economy that they have to become uh, competitive in the same way as Germany becomes competitive. That is internationally competitive, uh, export industries, uh, this this sort of thing, uh, where the Italians for a while played the game. They they let in the the, the Chinese, the the wonderful uh, uh, textile architecture, the textile industry of of Prato is now firmly in the hands of of Japan, of, of Chinese uh, companies. And I think in Prato they now have thirty thousand partly illegal uh, Chinese immigrants who are operating the textile uh, factories that that used to be operated by Italian small uh, small family firms. Yeah, and and this is what, where the strength of of Italian industry was for a long time, but but cannot uh, persist in a world in which they have to share the open market policies uh, and the of of the of, of, of the European Union. So so then putting these uh, 
putting this, uh, let's say, industrial organism under the constraints uh, of a, a German style uh, uh, currency, uh, strong currency like, like the euro, uh, for an export oriented country. Uh, and, and tying uh, Italy to the internal market without any protection so that Volkswagen could drive out Fiat. Uh, Fiat had to emigrate to the United States because Volkswagen was taking over uh, the Italian car market. This is so absolutely perverse. And, and, the, and the Italian political elite sort of thought that basically this was a process of modernization that would rid them of the, uh, of the uh, uh, outdated habits uh, of their uh, families and their uh, um, uh, yeah, trade unions. It's like, like uh, the Antonio Gramsci revelation. Yeah? Gramsci used to explain to the Russians or to, to, the, to the Soviets that Italy was different and that Italy could not be uh, uh, revolutionized uh, following Leninist concepts. And they almost put him to, into prison for this. Then Mussolini put him, put him to prison. So, so in, in, in a similar way, it would have been possible, or, or they might have told uh, the Europeans, uh, let Italy, give Italy the freedom uh, to pursue its own way. Uh, but they thought, in a way like the Soviets in the 1930s, that, that if they call in the expertise uh, of somewhere else to show them what a decent industrial society is, they would gain. What came out of it was that the Montes, the Gramsci, the, the, the Draghi's and all of these people sort of uh, uh, blew this thing up. Uh, up to a point where all the centrist parties are now deeply, deeply discredited, and and this new uh, uh, sort of Fratelli d'Italia party uh, is the only one standing. But but I will tell you, and and I will make a prediction here, that, that within the next year, uh, perfect, maybe even Draghi returns as president. Continuing uh, the cycle and, of far right and then technocrat, far right, technocrat, right? The absolutely. My friend uh, uh, Lucio Baccaro has, has, has written a fascinating piece on, on, on this. And, and it could actually be like this because they now see historical mistakes uh, are often such that you cannot correct them afterwards. They have painted themselves into this corner now after 20 years of the euro. It is very hard to get out of the euro because too many people in your country have indebted themselves uh, sort of in the European capital market. They have to pay their interest in, 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 in euros. Can they do it if they devalue, if they return to some sort of lira construction and devalue it? They won't be able to do it and so on and so on. So, so, so the, one of the things that I think we should all learn from what we've observed in the last five years is that historical mistakes cannot easily be undone. And there are problems that have no obvious solution. Right. I mean, and it's at the same time, it's hard to see what 
the best option for Italy would have been at the time, yeah. right? Because, I mean, um, you sort of allude to this, but, you know, they, they used to have a strong industrial economy and a lot of that was facilitated through constant devaluations to maintain competitiveness. Yeah. At the same time, that did give the Bundesbank so much power. And so part of the euro was a project to, to try to overcome some of that power. Of course, it's ended up basically creating a, an overvalued currency for Italy and, and hurting their competitiveness. You know, I, yeah. and, and I think you, you know, astutely point out that that the sort of narrative that there's this like German ordo liberalism or neoliberalism imposed from above from either, you know, Frankfurt or Berlin or or Brussels on on Italy isn't quite correct. Like there's the sort of national capitalist class yeah. that was happy to have this external constraint yeah. imposed on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the, the same is true, especially for, for a country like France. Uh, now uh, people think that the Germans have forced the French to, to enter a monetary union. It was the other way around. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the hope was for the uh, for the political class in France, partly shared by the political class in in in, in Italy, that with a hard currency, uh, sort of borrowed or, or called in from uh, Germany, uh, they would be able uh, to tame the resistant forces in their societies that were uh, sort of opposing rapid industrial modernization in the new world order after 1990, when uh, sort of globalization was on the agenda. And, and uh, it's quite clear that Mitterrand and, uh, and, and Delors had exactly that sort of thing. Also the Italians, the, the Banca d'Italia, you, you know this, had this idea about the, the, uh, the, external, uh, the external constraint, yeah? Uh, the uh, the uh, esterno is that it? Esterno, yeah. 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 And and, uh, and 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 they they thought they could sort of kick the uh, uh, the the trade unions and everybody else in the butt uh, with the help of uh, a, a central bank that would be run according to German standards. Then it turned out that uh, the, the Germans didn't want this. I I remember I remember uh, sort of. Sometimes you have these cocktail receptions and you talk to someone and it sticks in your memory for, forever. And that was in Florence in 1992 uh, when the, uh, the chief of the then German Central Bank uh, had given a speech where he suggested that Italy should not uh, join the uh, European uh, Monetary Union. And, um, and there was sort of unanimous, uh, unanimous disgust in the in the audience because everybody was like, even me, I I was sort of thinking, oh my god, this the typical reactionary. Uh, and then I had over cocktail. I asked him uh, why why uh, ultimately this was what he what he believed, and then he he told me uh, something like. Uh, I'm a devoted European. Yeah. I want Europe to hang together. What I know is that if we take Italy into a, a European monetary union, the opposite, the opposite of European uh, friendship, peace, and everything else will <laughs> result. <laughs> and I couldn't, this came so deep from the heart that, that, I, that it, I, it was for me uh, not a lie 
Yeah, there was something there, in, in, in other words. And what he had seen coming was two things. One, uh, a decline of, uh, of the Italian uh, economy under the uh, Euro regime. And two, uh, claims from Italy on Germany to pull it out of the swamp where uh, that would not fly in the German domestic, uh, uh, the domestic arena and would cause resentment from the Germans against the Italians, uh, causing more resentment among the Italians against the Germans. Yeah. And I think this sort of thing uh, has actually uh, been uh, driving uh, uh, German, Italian and uh, European uh, thing. If you, if you, uh, you, you mentioned this, this uh, so-called recovery fund, next generation EU, like uh, von der Leyen, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they get about, uh, I think, 60, uh, 65 billion uh, uh, in grants and, and then 100 billion in, uh, in, in, in loans, where everybody knows that the loans will never be repaid and, and, and something. And, and, and everybody was like, uh, what a wonderful thing. And now finally, European solidarity. Remember that Germany stuck 100 billion into its army uh, early this year, and now 200 billion into this uh, sort of subsidy uh, for um, households and, and, and companies on, on, on energy. This is 300 billion for this country alone to be spent in uh, one, two or three years. And that's and, all the off the book stuff, let, let alone the, yeah, you know, well, the regular budget. Off, well, yeah. well the, the, the recovery thing is also off the yeah, books. Yeah. That's the only way, incidentally, why they could do it. They, they, they invented sort of Frau von der Leyen as a sort of uh, uh, secret account for new debt that would not, not show up in their budget. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that, that they now say, <clears throat> this is the first step towards European debt. That's only 50% uh, true uh, because actually, the, because it is true that, that the EU takes, up, uh, the, the, takes out this, the, this debt in the capital markets, but the countries, are responsible for repaying the debt only to the extent uh, to uh, up to the share of their economy uh, in the total uh, European economy. And in order to get this solidarity going, uh, every country got something out of the fund, even uh, even Germany. Yeah, like 36 billion, they've already been paid for buses to Germany. They, they disappear somewhere in the German budget. Uh, but but uh, uh, so so far on 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 solidarity. That's it for the main feed part of Ted's interview with Professor Wolfgang Strick. Their conversation continues for another twenty to thirty minutes, and they get into some really interesting discussion about the potential future of European capitalism. We will be putting the rest of that conversation onto a Patreon episode, where we will also hear from Ted and Michelle sharing some of their thoughts on the interview. That will be posted to our Patreon feed sometime next week. You can subscribe to us at patreon.com forward slash Spaßbremse. A link to that will, of course, also be in the show notes. The support we get from Patreon is really significant in helping us to keep this show going, from helping us to get better gear to allowing us to pay a bit for the amazing space where we record. 
So we really appreciate all the support. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we will talk to you next time. Tschüss.